Thank you for becoming Emmanuel, God with us. You're not just God out there, but you're God up close and personal. We know what you are like because we see you so clearly as you've revealed yourself. When you walked among us and showed us that you love us. Lord, touch our hearts through the power of your word this morning we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Haley and her friend were at the mall, and at 16 years old, that's usually a high time in life. To go to the mall as a 16-year-old girl is usually something that they really enjoy. But as she was going through the clothes, a clerk was watching her and noticed that she looked really sad. And finally, she, she picked something out, and she rushed off to the dressing room, and she burst into tears just before she got to the dressing room door, went inside, the clerk came over to her friend and said, what's going on with your friend? Well, what's wrong? Why, why is she crying so much? Her friend said, well, she just lost her mother and her brother. And we're here shopping for clothing for her mom to wear in her casket. The clerk's heart was touched, and she said, well, oh, I can't believe you're going through this. Well, is there anything, is there something I could possibly do to, to help you right now? What, what could I do? She said, well, honestly, part of why she's crying is she just doesn't have enough money even to get proper clothing for her mom. Well, when Haley came out of the dressing room, and went to check out with clothes that she finally was able to muster up picking out with her friend. She brought them up to check out. The clerk said, don't worry about it. Take whatever you need and have a great day. And she walked away and she said that moment meant so much to her. You see, as her mom was declining, she got really depressed and she hadn't been able to make her appearance look very good for the last bit of her life. And, and to be able to dress her in her coffin, in beautiful clothing. And to, to have that as her final memory meant so much and gave her so much peace. And she wondered for years how this, this lady had, had been so kind to her. Why would she have done that? Thirteen years later, when she was 29 years old, she was running a photography business. And she went to photograph these grandchildren who had been brought in by a grandmother when suddenly she recognized the fact that this was that lady at the, the clerk at the store. And she said, hey, did you work in such and such a store in such and such a time? She said, yeah, that was me. I said, well, I'm the girl with the mom that had died who you gave me the clothes. And they began to talk and pretty soon they were going out to breakfast every two weeks. They would go out to breakfast together and a new friendship formed all from that one simple act of kindness. You know, it reminds me in the Bible of Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, that's quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, where, where God is, is introducing the fact that he's going to come as a baby, that a child is going to be born. And, and we're familiar with, with Isaiah 9, where it goes on to say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Well, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, it quotes from a few verses earlier where it says this, the land, starting in verse 15 actually, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. 
and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. To those who are sitting in darkness, to those who are in the region of the shadow of of death, light has dawned in their lives. But hang on a second. Isn't this the Jews? Weren't they supposed to be the light of the world? And this is saying that they are the land of darkness. Well, the time period where Jesus was born had become quite a dark time period. uh, Reading from the book Hidden Christmas by Tim Keller, it says, look at what was happening at the time of the birth of Jesus. Violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression, families ripped apart, and bottomless grief sounds exactly like today. Doesn't it? It was a, a region of darkness. It was, it was people living without hope who needed hope. And given that we are living in a time of darkness, when, when things are difficult, when, when things aren't as we might hope that they would be, there is a lot for us to get from the Christmas story. And there's a lot, not just because we too are living in a time of darkness, but because we too are on the verge of an advent. You know, Jesus didn't just promise that he was coming the first time, but he promised that he's coming back for us to take us home to be with him. And when I begin to think about the two Advents, one that Jesus came and that he's coming back, I realize something. I don't want to make the same mistake that the Jews made. Because as you read the gospel story and you read what takes place, just look at John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, describing how God existed uh, throughout eternity, but specifically how the second person of the Godhead was the Word who became Jesus, that baby who was born. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is such a beautiful thing. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, if you think about John 4, 8 and 4, 16, it says, God is love. Then, then the, the love of God is life, and that love is light. Christ's object lessons, uh, a classic on the life of uh, the parables that Jesus taught, Page 258 says, For God is love, and love is life. God is love, and love is life. When when Jesus came, his life, what was stirring in him, that life was the light of men. But sadly, it goes on to say this in verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light shone brightly. It shone into the darkness. But somehow, someway, the darkness did not comprehend it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be the story of my life. That Jesus shone bright light into my life. That I had a lot of truth. I had a lot of revelation of who He was. But I didn't quite comprehend it. So what was it for the Jews? Now if you look at their history again and again, they fell into idolatry and they were taken off to be captive and they, they often were, were drawn into idolatrous practices which created problems for them. And so 
when they finally come back to Jerusalem and they are able to rebuild, they have determined steadfastly that, that idolatry will never be a part of their religion again. They're, they're fixing their minds on being faithful to God. They recognize that the law of God is what brings prosperity. But here's the problem. God's law does bring prosperity. It does protect us. It's important for us to follow these values. But if we do it with the wrong motives, it can turn out to be, in the end, a really miserable thing. Desire of Ages, another classic on the life of Christ, page 28 says, But with too many of the people, obedience was not prompted by love. What was obedience not prompted by? Love. The motive was selfish. They rendered outward service to God as the means of attaining to national greatness. They did not become the light of the world, but shut themselves away from the world in order to escape temptation to idolatry. They didn't become the light of the world because they were too focused on themselves. They were focused on what they wanted to do in preserving their integrity. And they they began to do everything possible to ensure that they were a righteous nation. They began to, they started the synagogue during this time, just before the time of Christ, where, where they had synagogues throughout the land. And these synagogues were there in order to teach the people the law and to make sure that everybody was instructed clearly about God's, God's Torah, the law. And, and they established schools and they did everything possible. And then they began to come up with all these reasons why You shouldn't get anywhere near a Gentile and why you should wash your hands so many times before you eat and why you should... And they began to do everything possible to guard their moral purity. And in the process, they were becoming what is one of the most immoral things possible. To be professing to follow God and yet to be filled with selfishness and thereby to be casting reproach on his name on who he is because the people around you are looking to you for is this what God is like oh man I want nothing to do with their God because look at how selfish they are look at the way that they act now it's pretty fascinating when you think about the time period that they're living in and what they had to deal with you can't blame them entirely for how they wanted to do everything possible to guard themselves against the Gentiles. Just look at, for instance, the Romans. The Romans were this oppressive leading power of the world that were just dominating the world. They, they, uh, they, they, they enacted heavy taxation upon the Jews. So they had this incredible burden of taxes because of the Romans. How many of you like taxes? Uh, didn't see any hands raised, huh? Right. The Romans were very into idolatry. They had a multiplicity of gods. Twelve of them were were preeminent, and uh, three of them in particular. Jupiter was the head god. And now this god, Jupiter, he he was a a vindictive god that that would zap you with with lightning. But of course, he would consult with other gods first. But they were capricious. They were untrustworthy. And you just hoped that you could appease them. They were very corrupt as a society, the Romans were. Um, There was slavery. There was intolerance. There was human sex trafficking. Homosexuality was well documented and and not just uh, uh, the type of homosexuality that you see today, but where you have young boys as, as male sex slaves. 
coming to parties. And that's, that's the way things worked in Roman culture. And so you can see why the Jews, rightfully so, are like, hey, we got to make sure we stay away from that, right? we got to make sure that we guard our integrity, our purity. And yet in the process of reacting against that, they kept themselves from being a light to the darkness. And they themselves became dark. Desire of Ages, page 30, says it this way. Greed and violence, distrust and spiritual apathy were eating out the very heart of the nation. Hatred of the Romans and and national and spiritual pride led the Jews still to adhere rigorously to their forms of worship. Pride obscured their vision. They interpreted prophecy in accordance with their selfish desires. When they went and they read the Torah, when they read the prophets, when they interpreted what prophecy was all about, it was about self-preservation. It was about them. It was about making sure that they were righteous. Not about loving the world. And in the process, light came into the world and the darkness did not comprehend it. He came to his own, John goes on to say, and his own did not accept him. Isaiah 53 had predicted this, that he would be like a root out of dry ground, that there would be, they would think that there was no beauty in him, that he should be desired. You read through the story of the nativity, and we look at it as this beautiful, beautiful story. But time and time again throughout the story, you wonder, why did they miss it? Why didn't Zechariah get it when the angel appears to him? Why didn't he immediately say, of course, I know that this will happen because God has sent an angel right here. Why was it that King Herod didn't believe when the wise men came? Why was it that, that the, the religious elite, when, when Herod asked them, well, where is the Messiah going to be born? They say, well, he'll be born in, Micah 5.2 says he'll be born in Bethlehem then why didn't they go to Bethlehem to see if he had been born? What kept them from being willing to embrace and see Jesus as their Savior? Desire of Ages, page 29, says, The more rigid they grew, the less of the love of God was manifested in their lives. They measured their holiness by the multitude of their ceremonies while their hearts were filled with pride and and hypocrisy. And friends, when I think about my life and I think about the light that I've been given and I realize how easy it is to begin to slip into forms and to begin to not recognize the value behind the forms, the principles of what it's all about. Last week we talked about how everything that God desires for us is relational in nature. That he is desiring to fulfill that longing for love that every human being, whether they recognize it or not, is longing for. That thing that alone will quench the addiction that we see in the world, the depression that we see in the world, is to fully embrace the love of God. Thankfully, some people did get it. Go with me to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, there's a fascinating picture of when light shines out in a field. God had to show up to shepherds who were outcasts. They weren't the, the ones that you would expect God to announce his message to. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Now there were some in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly 
afraid. So they see this bright light shining all around them. They see God's glory. And we talked about it a little while back. What is the glory of God? It was revealed to Moses as his character, his character that he is gracious and merciful, full of justice and compassion, the God who forgives sinners, who by no means cleanses, uh, uh, clears the guilty who refuse to repent. This glory appears all around them. And then verse 10, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. Okay, so we've been talking about this each week. It's good news, good tidings, not good advice. Good, we might not even have to do this next week. First service is going to have to keep doing that for a while, right? It's good news, not good advice. Good news, not good advice. Now, I had to clarify in first service, so I'll clarify here again today because it's been a while since we went through that. What we mean by that is that it's a good news about what Jesus has accomplished fully for you and me. The gospel is about what he has done. It's not advice about what you need to do for your life. Instead, it's the, the message of what he has already accomplished for you. And embracing that message changes everything in your life. When you get to know what he's already done for you, the good news changes absolutely everything in your life. But it's good news, not good advice. Going on, verse 13 says, and suddenly, uh, well, actually we skipped a couple verses there, didn't we? Verse 11 says, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now to this, does it sound good news that you have a Savior? Those of you who say, yes, it's good news, that's because you recognize something. What do you recognize in order for it to be good news that you have a Savior? That you're lost, that you need it, that you're hopeless. If you want a Savior, it's because you recognize that you're lost. If you don't recognize your need, then you don't recognize, then you don't want a Savior. And, and to, to tell the Jews that they needed a Savior, to tell them that they needed light, was to tell them that they were lacking in something. But I want to tell you something. Christian, Seventh-day Adventist today, we need a Savior. We need a Savior today. Then he goes on to explain, in case there's a misunderstanding of what this means, of some gallant Messiah who's going to come in and conquer the Romans for them. And this will be the sign to you. This will be how you can tell the sign, the miracle of it. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You'll, you'll find him just, just wrapped in, in common cloths and, and lying in a feed trough on some hay. Now you think about it. And you think about an angel saying this. This is, this is an angel who we know from the Bible pre-existed the creation of this planet. And, and angels, we don't know how long they have existed for, but but this is an angel who lives to serve God. And the, the Bible is really clear that, that there's God and then there's other created beings. Specifically, angels are mentioned. And then it mentions that, that men are lower down in creation than are angels. So this is a being of majesty, of power, that's, that's higher in order than you and me, who lives to serve this amazing God. And imagine this message. He's like, yeah, so... This amazing God, 
has come down and chosen to be born, and, and he's in a stable right now, laying in a feed trough. And in that moment, you might expect sadness from an angel. But instead, in that moment, suddenly all of heaven breaks loose in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Why do angels worship? Angels worship because of the character of God. Worship is to ascribe worth to Him. And they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now this is totally foreign to our minds. When we think about what it is to exalt somebody, to glorify somebody, it's not for them to step lower and still lower and still lower. If you look in Hebrews chapter 2, And Hebrews comes just after what I think helps us to grasp a little bit better why the angels are excited about this. Hebrews chapter 1 has told us that that Christ is the very expression of the Father's glory, that He's the outshining of His glory. But in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, it it describes what Christ is doing here in in becoming born, into being born as a, a baby there in the manger. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says it this way, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, those angels know that, that this baby has been born to a lower order of beings than they. And, and for the express purpose of what? What does this verse go on to say? He was born so that he could taste death. Uh, before this, he was the I am, who was, who is, and who always will be. There was no possibility for him to taste death for you and me. But he stepped down and became a mortal human being so that he could taste death for you and I. So that we could know the reality is that God loves you and me more than he loves himself. That he is selfless and other-centered. And in that moment, the angels are rejoicing. They're praising God. They are excited. What an incredible thing to think that that gets angels excited. But in Hebrews chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, verse 14, it says that they are all ministering spirits. And here's the crucial point today. What heaven is all about is other-centered, selfless love. Angels get excited when they see the King of Glory step down to become a baby. And they say, yes, glory to God in the highest. Things are getting better in the universe. Because he stepped down and went lower. That's not how we operate. We're like, yes, my my hero just won the game. Or my candidate just won the election. Or my, the higher they go, the better. But the angels are like, no, no, no. This is good news. He's stepping lower. And Jesus, when the disciples are arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he says, look, don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over each other. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So the reason that that I, I exist is to serve, to give, 
to lift others up. Friends, the way up is down. The way up is down. To serve and to love and to give. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says? Then serve. Give yourself in service and love towards other people. That is the essence of what it means to be like Jesus. Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, and it, it really depicts what was going wrong for the Jews. It says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. That's odd to say, isn't it? Didn't, didn't he set up the sacrificial system? Didn't he enact for them to have a sanctuary and make all of these really specific laws about how they should sacrifice sheep, how they should go about exactly all the details of their sanctuary service? But he said, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But for Israel, they had begun to make that the sum total of what religion was all about. And I believe that's because of the principle of heathenism that had become a part of Israel at that point in time. Desire of Ages, page 35, says, The principle that man can save himself from his, by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. You get that? Every heathen religion, if you think about it, it comes down to the fact that there is something inside of me that can merit something with God, that can get his pleasure, that can appease him, that can somehow get me somewhere with God. And it had now become the principle of the Jewish religion. Satan had implanted this principle. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier against sin. This is incredible. So if you and I think that somehow we have something to offer, that the gospel is good advice and not good news, if that is what we believe, then we have no barrier against sin. But it's only as we recognize that we have nothing to offer and that we need a Savior, that Christ can come and live in us and transform us to be the loving people that he's called us to be. Desire of Ages goes on to say this about the Jews and what they had done. It says that they were taking a course to misrepresent the character of God and cause the world to look upon him as a tyrant. They had ceased to look beyond the symbol to the thing signified. And I'll just be honest, I've done this plenty of times in my life. I'll not look beyond the symbol to the thing that's signified by it. They, they did this in a multiplicity of ways. We'll get to that in a second. In presenting the sacrificial offerings, they were as actors in a play. The ordinances which God himself had appointed were made the means of blinding the mind and hardening the heart. God could do no more for man through these channels. The whole system must be swept away. Now just imagine this. You've grown up from your childhood. You've gone to synagogue. You've gone to school and you've learned the Torah. You've learned about the sacrificial system to have this idea that somehow the Messiah was going to come and was going to wipe away all of those things. All of the sacrifices. All of the temple services. And that you would no longer need that? That would be blasphemy to you. But today, as we recognize that we're living in a world where worship looks a little different than what we might be used to, at least on Sabbath morning. Where the pandemic has been changing things around us. 
I think it might be helpful in this time, and it's helpful for me to recognize what is the symbol and what is the significance behind the symbol. What does it really mean to worship? And what are the forms and rites and things that I go through? What is it that God has actually asked of me? And what is it that it really means to live a life of worship? Friends, to worship, to really, really, truly worship, we've got to ascribe worth to this character of a God who stepped down from the throne of the universe to become a baby. And the best way to do that is to live lives of service ourselves. Hebrews goes on to say that the new promise, the new covenant that's given to us through what Christ has done is that he's going to write his law on our heart. So that we too have a body that's been prepared for us. Now notice, I actually, sorry, I'm skipping ahead of myself. Verse 5 goes on to say, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus says, I don't desire the sacrifice and offerings. What I really want to do is actually step down there, become God with them, and love you to the end so that you see what my love is like. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And then in verse 16 it says, This is the covenant. Now I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I want for you to be a body that will represent the character of God on this planet. So that when people look at the way you love, the way that you serve, the way that you reach out to them, They will glorify God. They will be like Haley and say, wow, why would this clerk do this for me? Where did that love come from? I believe that love is life. That Jesus came to reveal to us that God is love and that his love is life to us. Notice how Hebrews 10 goes on. In verses 23 to 25, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. It says the closer you get to the end, don't stop pulling each other together for what? To stir each other up to love. To stir each other to go out and change the world. Jesus said, Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What the world really needs to see is the love of God revealed. The Jews had a problem. They had taken, the Bible says that thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They'd taken this and they were shining it in their faces. You know, it's funny. At night, between my parents' house and my house, there's this little trail that goes between uh, our house, and at night, now that it gets dark early, uh, we'll, we'll be walking along, and we're, we're looking at Christmas lights, and, and we'll be asking the girls, well, which, is, which are your favorite Christmas lights? And Livia will say, I like this. I like this one. I like this one. She likes pretty much all of them, but especially the really bright and colorful ones. The more brightly color, colored they are, the better. But then when we go down this dark trail, Grandma will bring a flashlight with us because she wants to make sure that we can see our way nicely down the trail. And Livy says, Livy, hold. Oh, hold. Oh, hold. I want to hold it. But there's a problem. Whenever she grabs the flashlight, it is no longer pointed at the path. It is now pointed in her eyes. 
And she's just standing there looking straight into the flashlight. This always happens when we give them a flashlight. And granted, they're, they're learning. They're almost two. Pretty soon they'll be able to hold the flashlight. But how often in my life have I been shining his word into my eyes, not recognizing that it's a light for my path too. That I'm to, to reflect his glory. That I'm to look to who he is, to ascribe worth to that so that it enacts action in my heart so that I begin to reach the world around me, that I can show the world that God really is with them. You know, this isn't always easy. In fact, Mark and I had an experience this week where uh, a guy down in the the park in in San Luis Obispo, he has a cell phone, but it's only working on Wi-Fi right now. And he gave me a call and he said, I really need your help in order to make a phone call to Social Security because I have another check that will be enabling me to get enough money to pay for my insurance on my van that I'm living in beside the park. And he's telling us this story. And I said, well, okay. I had offered that, you know, I'll help you out. I'll I'll come and I'll, I'll let you call on my phone. Well, he calls me and we go down there and we're standing there at Mitchell Park. And it's, it's a pretty crazy place. And as we're standing there, he's on hold And 15 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, 30 minutes goes by, 45 minutes goes by. He's like, man, this is the longest phone call I've ever had. (laughs) Or I don't know if he said it exactly like that, but he said, did you expect that it would be this long of a phone call? Over an hour we spent for him to be on the phone so that he could come up with his extra $600 and then get his money to his account each week. Sometimes to share to love, to serve, isn't as easy as we expect. It causes us to have to go a little bit out of our way. And, and we may not see the impact of it. For 13 years, that store clerk didn't realize the difference that she had made in that girl's life. But friends, we are called to be light to the world around us. Not just at this time of the year, but to live lives that are reflecting the glory of God day in and day out. This is true worship. To live lives for Jesus that represent his selfless, other-centered love. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for the Ephesians and he pleads with God that he would reveal to them what his love is like. And he goes on to say that he prays for them that they would know the heights, the depths, the breadth of the love of God, that they would comprehend. It uses that same word that the light has come into the world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. He prayed that they would be able to comprehend the height, the length, the breadth, the depth of the love of God so that they might be filled with all the fullness of God, so that they too might become bodies that Christ lives out his love in the world around them. Friends, don't get tied up in just the ritual, the symbol. Don't get just tied up in what the Sabbath is about because the Jews persecuted Jesus because they were looking to the symbol of the Sabbath, but they missed the point of what the Sabbath is all about. And that is to love and to serve and to give. And if I get wrapped up in self-preservation and my end-time understanding and my understanding of the Sabbath, if any of it is about selfish motives, then in the end, 
The darkness in me will not comprehend the light, but I want for that light to shine deep into my soul. In the midst of this pandemic, the world desperately needs to see light. And this past, uh, during this pandemic, something really inspiring happened. A guy by the name of Michael Edmond in Florida was uh, blessed this year. His business had done pretty well. Um, and so he called his power company. And he recognized that some people were suffering. And he, he, he wanted a list of people that had less than $100 left on their bill. And the list was so big, he was so impressed that he, he gave to all of them plus more. He gave over $7,600 so that 114 people in his little town in Florida could not have their power shut off. There's light in homes in Florida who have been impacted by the pandemic. Now his town was impacted, he said, through uh, the, the economic difficulties that are going on there. The hurricane that just recently came through, Hurricane Sally, had hit their town. And he said, you know, you can still see some of the roofs are leaking. They have blue tarps over them. Just recently, the, one of the main bridges that connects to the city uh, was hit by a barge and created more problems. He said, there's been so many problems in our city that I, I just wanted for people to know that there's hope. And when I found out that some people, they can't come up with $100 to pay off their electricity bill so that they could have light and heat said, I've got to do something about this. And he gave $7,000 to bring light to those homes. I don't know what gifts God has given you. Maybe he's given you $7,000 that you can call a power company and you can get people in our area to be able to have light. Or maybe he's given you a hammer and nails and you can go to that house that the siding is falling off of and you can help them out. Maybe he's given you mechanical skills for somebody's car. Maybe he just has given you the ability to pull weeds. Maybe he's given you the ability to notice when somebody's down and to be there for them. Another story that came out of the pandemic just the, this past week, a dairy queen in, I believe it was Minnesota, a guy paid for the order behind him in line to pay. He paid for his, his order as well as the one behind him. That person paid for the one behind him, and that one paid for the one behind him. And before long, 900 cars had all passed on the blessing. And there's this huge story about it. You never know what a small little gift might do in somebody's life. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe it's to let somebody know that they're truly loved. People are lonely. They're depressed. And they need to see that there is a God of love who came all the way from the throne of glory to be born as a baby so that they could have life and light. Love was born. And just to think about that simple line, love was born. Love took on flesh so that you and I could know what it means to love, so that we can know what God's purpose for a life is, that we would humbly serve and love those around us. Love was born. He chose to be born because he wanted to come close to you, to be Emmanuel, God with you. And angels... They sing glory to God in the highest when they recognize that now you and I are more closely united with God than they'll ever have the privilege of being because God has become human flesh. And God is now, Jesus is sitting on the throne of God as God in human flesh. And throughout eternity, we are more closely united. And angels say glory to God in the highest. May we too 
rejoice in exalting the lives of people around us to higher heights than we can ever go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that love gives, that the way up is down. Lord, this is so foreign to our minds. To us, we want recognition. To us, we want to be acknowledged. To us, we want to go higher. And yet you've revealed the greatest and most powerful thing we can do is to serve. Lord, would you transform my heart and my mind by the power of your Spirit? Would you write this law of love on my heart so that I can live this? So that the lives around me will see light. That they'll know that you're good. Not just because I tell them, but because they have had their lives made better through coming in contact with me. Lord, this is a miracle that only you can do. But would you write your law of love on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you fill us? Would Christ be born in us? That same love stir in us that led you to leave the throne of the universe gladly to come and be born for us. Father, bless my friends as they go to live lives of worship, lives of love, lives of service. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.